His parents told him he'd never get anywhere playing video games for a living. Now he's here. It's Behind the Line Radio with your host, Kinetic. And it starts now. Hello everyone and welcome to Behind the Line Radio. I'm your host, Kinetic, here to give you some insight into what life is like behind the production line of the entertainment that you and I enjoy. Today, we're taking a small departure from what I'm usually going to be talking about. Instead of talking about video games, we're branching off a bit, kind of, into films and crowdfunding. I know I already I already write about crowdfunding a lot, but new wrinkles keep coming up, so it keeps being interesting to talk about. And with me today to discuss this is a local star of stage and screen, actually, Bill. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. So, in the news recently, Don Bluth started a... Actually, there's a little bit more to it, but Don Bluth started a crowdfunding campaign to take his Dragon's Lair arcade game from the early 1980s and have it adapted into a movie. Um, I mean, I, for one, am quite simply glad to see Don Bluth doing some more stuff. I'm sure... For those who remember him, would kind of like to see him at least try to go out on a better note than Titan AE. Um, <laughs> wouldn't, be too, wouldn't be too hard to beat that one. No, but I mean, <laughs> I Titan AE was a movie that came out in a really awkward kind of time frame for movies where clearly for, things were going into a realm of computer animation. I was going to say for animated films, not necessarily awkward for movies in general, but for animated films in particular. Yes, in particular. In live-action films, there was a lot of stuff, too, where they were really trying to figure out how to use computer-generated imagery well. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was a lot of... Actually, the Nostalgia Critic had a big um, sort of... Not introspection, but sort of a, a, a analysis piece on this zone of movies where they started moving away from practical effects and into computer effects mm-hmm. and it was pretty interesting about how how there was a really bad growing pain era there trying to figure out how to get this used well and not be distracting from the movie correct yeah i can see how that would be the case and um actually you and i were watching was it uh i can't remember the name is it hugo yes we were watching that the other day and um we were po- uh, you and i were discussing this and pointed out that uh that had some rather very apparent computer generated imagery in it, but it was used in a way that wasn't intended to quite look so realistic and added to the sort of fantastical world that that movie was set in. And they did a good job of marrying it with the rest of the art direction from the film, which helps a lot. And that's again about, as you're saying, creating the tone of something fantastic, something a little bit otherworldly. They also, well, when we were watching it, we were watching on a small screen, and all computer animated effects and things like that suffer on the small screen, I find. Um, when I saw that movie originally, I saw it on the big screen, and it looked – the marriage was a little bit more seamless between the practical and the animated. So yeah. but that ended up that ended up being a good example of using it – using the effects well for what you were trying to achieve and creating an artistic – world that an entire artistic vision that worked that melded well together right i the, the, your description of that actually reminds me of uh 
when you first saw the crow you mm-hmm. you actually described that one to me as they had the blue screen effects that were apparently blue screen effects but they kind of highlighted things i don't know if you remember that yeah there were things there were um it had to do with uh some of the scenes if anybody remembers the the images of the original film the crow of eric draven as the crow running along say the tops of buildings and and stuff like that. And it was very clear that this was not reality. And they had made that choice that they weren't trying to make it look 100% real. But in that world, whether you could, you could interpret it as, well, this is what the world looks like to somebody who's come back from the dead. Or you could interpret it as this is just what that world is like, where that process of coming back from the dead as the crow is possible. Um, but either way, it was an artistic choice that worked because of the sensibilities of the rest of the film, as opposed to something that jumped out at you and went, well, that looks like a failure. Yeah. Um, sort of bringing this back to, to animation a bit, partially there, there's a lot of times in, in live action movies where they put uh, these computer effects of jumps and stuff. And you can tell that like people aren't reacting to these things around them, or there's a jump or a flying motion and human brains are actually pretty good at recognizing how physics should work, mm-hmm. at least, you know, on the surface of the earth. So if an arc of a jump is wrong, you can see if something isn't quite moving right, you may not, you may not notice, but your brain does. Um, and I remember in the commentary track for The Incredibles, the Pixar film, they, they made a lot of, they, they, they made a very big point of how difficult it was to make things look like they had weight because particularly <coughs> pardon me particularly with computer animation it really wants to make everything look like it has no mass it's it's very difficult and and they at that time were talking about how um they went back and looked at the shot from the jungle book of Baloo trying to push Mowgli up a tree mm-hmm. and how Part part of them wanted to say, oh, this is old school techniques. It doesn't really apply to what we're doing. We can do stuff better than that. We know a lot more than they did then. But with a different medium of computer animation, they realized that the physics involved in what they were animating with pushing the kid up the tree was actually really impressive and hard to do and hard to convey that sense of mass. But that's just an example of how difficult... It can be to marry these computer-generated images, which primarily serve to remove a lot of boundaries for what you can present on screen. But because they have these challenges with them, it took the industry a while to kind of adapt to what you could do here. Well, just to put a tangent on this tangent. (laughs) um, (laughs) I don't mind tangents, man. Uh, as I'm a juggler and I often find myself being asked to teach people to juggle. And one of the things that happens, and this is one of the reasons that the physical laws, when they are disobeyed by an animation feature or any animation are so noticeable, as you say, you know what, how things react physically on the earth. And as I teach people to juggle, one of the things that I will tell them is, okay, you have a ball and it's flying through the air and you've thrown it. And When you watch that ball travel through the air, you have an entire lifetime of experience of watching things fly through the air on this earth. And you know the shape of that path, the parabolic shape that anything takes, you recognize. So if you see a ball 
that you've thrown right in front of you, hit the top of its arc and start to come down, at that point, you can actually close your eyes and still catch the ball because your brain can basically fill in the blanks to create the rest of the image of where that parabola is going and what the timing is going to be even. You may not get it right the very first time, but that's the kind of immense body of knowledge that you as a physical body have about what goes on on the earth as we know it. Yeah. There, there's, yeah, humans have just evolved. It, it, I mean, not just your, your own experience, but I mean, that's just a part of how we work on the earth. It's important for us how we function to know these things. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, and and to bring it back to Don Bluth himself, I mean that kind of it it, it can it kind of makes sense how one the basically the Godfather of of hand drawn animation had some growing pains himself when computer generated animation started to take over and you know traditional animation studios started shutting down. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is the guy who did who worked on um, was it not Snow White Sleeping Beauty. I think it was and Disney's Robin Hood right with the with the animals mm-hmm. and American Tale and Land Before Time at least the first one not its 70 billion sequels um <laughs> I don't know if he was associated with anyone but I know he was the first one you know the one that everyone cares about that was one sequel for every year when from when the original was set <laughs> to, to present day Littlefoot's old <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and, you know, plenty of other stuff, um, Thumbelina, Anastasia, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't know if you played many arcade games when, uh, Dragon's Lair, the first one was released. Uh, I remember, you- I remember when this actually came out, um, and I remember being impressed by it because it made a big splash, mm. um. I was, I, I'm I'm sure just the level of visuals associated were amazing to everybody at the time. It was. The thing that I remember, I only played it a couple of times because the thing that I remember having trouble with was the interface where when the moment came to make a choice or what you needed to do, there wasn't, uh, I don't, I, my recollection is that there wasn't a regular, well, this this is a movement pattern or this is a movement pattern that you're going to need. You would be given slightly slight variations that you would have to respond to each time you had the opportunity to, uh, you know, input action for your hero. And I found that at the time I found that very frustrating. It was, it was much more complex than the video games that you had at the time. Cause this is, this is a time where, you know, you still had like, the video game arcades were still full of games like Centipede and, you know, there was still asteroids out there and Tron and things like that, you know, Galaga, you know, very simple two dimensional games. Most of the time, uh, the 3d, 3d star Wars, I think had not yet come out, which is the line drawn star Wars game the vector or, graphics, one. vector graphics. Exactly. Um, I don't think that had come out yet when when Dragon's Lair or it may they may have come out around the same time. I can't recall for sure. Um, so the richness of the detail that you got from that game was amazing. The interaction that you had as a player 
wasn't as satisfying. So, and I think that's where that game, at least from from my experience, was more difficult to enjoy. Right. It was definitely a much more awkward user experience. I I played Dragon's Lair, but it was uh, the Dragon's Lair 2 that came out later. I played that a handful of times, and I never got very far. Um, I know because the interface is actually just like up, down, left, right, and attack or action. But uh, And I mentioned the Nostalgia Critic before, and he'll come up again. But he, he spent some time with Dragon's Lair and pointed out that sometimes what the game expected from the player wasn't exactly clear, like... Here's this flash to, to Dirk's left. Are you supposed to hit left or action? Or is it is it supposed to be down because it's actually kind of below him? Or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, because they didn't want it to just be a game of rote memorization, they would m- mix up the sequences. Which is perfectly legitimate in terms of, you know, making the gameplay more satisfying over time. Yeah. But the gameplay has to be satisfying. There has to be the satisfaction of being able to achieve the goals that you need to achieve and understanding how you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. So this was this was definitely a rough game back in the day. But I would also point out that this was also real early in video game development in the first place. So that that kind of sticks out to me. <clears throat> Pardon me. That well, kind of the- sticks out to me as as kind of an experimental type of gameplay. And there's other games that have had similar elements to this <clears throat> but done perhaps a bit more smoothly but again this was geez 30 plus years ago i mean it's well it's not pretty... long not far away from the time period where dragon's lair came out there was a very short-lived video game that came out that was literally a hologram it was you know the you know the visual illusion where you can have a penny in a bowl and it looks like the penny is floating yeah it was basically that that, I, I remember that. That was the those Sega games, and they had that uh, it was uh, a time-traveling Western. Yes, exactly. And the wizard that came out and said, turn before you shoot. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I've talked about that one in, in one of these podcasts before, too. And that one, I have no idea what the name of it was, but it was another step in terms of experimenting with what the medium looked like that ended up interfering with what the interaction was, what the user interface was. Yeah, that one definitely, I, I found what I, when I was little, I found that one fascinating and kept trying to figure out what it was, but I never quite got what the control scheme was asking me for. Neither did I. And I think part of the problem that it had was you had a two dimensional controller, but you had a three dimensional image. <laughs> or, or something that was kind of like a three-dimensional image. Well, it was pretty much, I mean, you what you were looking at was as that image was floating there in front of you, you had up, down, left, right, side, side. You had more options than your controller gave you. Like you could try to shoot behind the person that you were looking at mm-hmm. or toward you or to the left or to the right. You know, most most video games are 2D and it's, you know, left, right, up and down. But this had an added added access that was not on the controller which was kind of confusing yeah <laughs> so <laughs> yes we started talking about don bluth and started and wound up talking about very old arcade games but that's not too surprising given the context so to to get back to the dragon's lair movie campaign uh i know that you've actually had at least a little bit of um 
uh, a history with Kickstarter mm-hmm. as a crowdfunding source. Yeah, I know it was it was really small for your particular thing, but um, I don't know. Do you have any insights you would like to share for how crowdfunding worked for you? You know, my experience was that it worked really well. Now, my needs were fairly small, and I did that on purpose because I didn't want to tax the uh, people who would be donating to the campaign overly much. I and I didn't, I did, didn't have humongous needs that I was looking to to achieve. Um, so the process was fairly simple for me. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a great way to stay in touch with and find what sort of a groundswell you might have for support. Hmm. My situation, it ended up being more of a friends and family campaign than uh, a sort of crowdsourcing campaign. And I think it's really important if you're going to do that, that you have a truly, well, not huge, but you have a pretty extensive network of people who are interested in your work if you want to be able to do something that's going to be big. So if I was to say, be interested in say crowdsourcing something that was going to cost much like you're talking about with this, uh, um, the, uh, trailer that they're trying to put together for dragon's lair. If I wanted hundreds and thousands of dollars, well, the couple of hundred of people that I ha- have <laughs> in the network for my work, isn't going to be enough, obviously, because, you know, it's a hundred thousand dollars each and that's yeah. not going to happen. Um, and imagine what I would have to give them <laughs> <laughs> a new car. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it, d- there is a calculus that you have to do if you want to crowdsource something about what, what is your monetary goal and how many people are engaged with your work that are going to actually want to contribute. I actually was speaking to somebody not too long ago who was part of a band and they have a, they've been performing for years and years and years and they have a pretty big following. And she said she and her band started a Kickstarter campaign because they wanted to publish a new album, you know, pressing the CDs, all that good stuff. And it was going to pay for their studio time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they had been playing shows for years and they had a huge following. So when they started their Kickstarter campaign, they said, okay, if we get, you know, I think it was, you know, 15,000 or $10,000, we'll be able to do this and everybody. And at a certain point, one of the rewards was, and, you know, if you give us 10 bucks or 15 bucks, well, you'll get a copy of the CD. Well, that's pretty close to the cost of an actual physical CD anyway. Mm-hmm. So for the people who were interested in this band, this is a great deal. Oh, I want to pay you 15, 20 bucks. I'm going to get a copy of this brand new CD and I've got my fingerprints on it a little bit. So they opened up their crowdsource sourcing account and I think they had their 10 or $15,000, whatever it was, covered in a day. Hmm. That's pretty and, good. and at that point, they looked at how much money they had already made, already had ready, and they said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to now say, if we get $30,000, we'll fund two albums, hmm. and if you donate X amount, you get both of them. Uh-huh. So now people who have donated 20 bucks are motivated to donate 30 or 40 whichever it is. It's not a huge burden on them, and 
they're not even necessarily needing to reach out to more people than they've reached initially, but they're going to because obviously you don't reach everybody in day one. And they did. They were able to fund. They were able to get, I think their initial goal was 10 and they ended up with $30,000 and they were able to create two albums as a result. But it's a matter of that calculus between how much you how much you are going to ask people to contribute and how much you're giving them back as your reward for being part for investing in your project. Interesting. So I think there's there's a few things to kind of dig into here. First of all, do you know if um, because Kickstarter has, you know, stretch goals, you know, we have this great, this is our primary goal. And if we get this much more, then we get this more stuff. And it sounds like the second album would be essentially a stretch goal for them. Uh, do you know if they had that in place from the beginning or did they add that after they I am, um, had some success? I am fairly certain that they added that afterwards, after they had encountered, they'd seen how much they, they had made. They were able able to alter their their um, campaign. Okay, interesting. So that, that seems like a pretty good example for a successful kind of mid-range campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have no idea if you had have, have any insight to this, but... Um, I would imagine that uh, recording an album would be, I don't want to say straightforward, but coming from the point of view of video game production is probably has a lot less question marks associated with it than uh, uh, music production would have fewer question marks associated with its production than video games would. I don't know that for a fact, but that seems logical to me as well. Okay. Um, Because... One of the other things that happens is a lot of video game Kickstarters that happen. The ones that catch a lot of headlines, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying about um, sort of your your the size of your support base. There are certain developers or game creators that when they make a Kickstarter, it grabs news headlines, and that drives a lot more interest their way, which then drives a lot more dollars their way whether it's because they have been associated with big projects before or they're kind of a, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, well, I'm trying to reference Tim Schafer where he's got a lot of uh, well-respected works, whether or not they've all been the most commercially successful, but a lot of people have a lot of uh, respect for his work and they're pretty energetic about it. Sort of artistic, sort of artistically yeah. accepted, but yes. Yeah. Not not that he's a commercial failure or anything. It's just certainly he's not the one you go to when you absolutely have to make sure this thing makes money. Right. Because he might kind of go iffy on it. And in in his uh, – for his sake, like one of his relative commercial failures, Brutal Legend, was because the advertising campaign was really misleading. Uh, so that wasn't necessarily his fault. But – um, a number of these uh, and and a number of these game makers have had very successful Kickstarters, but they've run into various problems. Either they undersold how much they thought they needed and got hit with a whole bunch of problems in production or various other things. I've written about Peter Molyneux. He had a very successful campaign to make another God game. He's like the godfather of God games, so to speak. And... His project Goddess just went completely off the rails, and you know he's got a a, a reputation for overpromising and underdelivering. However much of that's deserved, that is his reputation. 
And Tim Schaefer, for his example, he got so much money that it, my perception at least, is that it almost paralyzed him. Like he felt he needed to do something to justify this money that he got (laughs) and wound up putting so much into it that he, (coughs) pardon me, he wound up having to ask for more money to finish what he expanded the project to. Well, there is the fact that when you're in any sort of artistically inclined endeavor, you're always so happy when somebody wants to pay you for it. But the thing that you have to remember, I think, in a crowdsourcing, and this is a complete uh, personal interpretation, when people donate to your, contribute to your crowdsourcing campaign, they're not asking for more than what you do. They're asking for you. They're asking for what you do. I know what you do. I like what you do. I want to see more of what you do. And it doesn't mean I need the best ever example of what you do. I just want to see what you do again. And that's something that can be difficult for somebody in the arts to sort of wrap your head around. Because it's not like a situation where you're going to a nine to five job or somebody says, hey, you do what you do. You know, you have a box that you sit in and that's what that's where you deliver your, uh, um, you know, your your value for, for lack of a better word. Whereas in anybody, anybody who's doing something creative, you feel like, oh, they really want something great because they've given me all this extra. That's not necessarily true. It would be awesome if it was something great, but you got all this extra, not from one individual person who said, give me all this extra. You got all this extra from a bunch of individuals who said, yeah, it's worth 25, 30, $45 for me to see this next project. Hmm. So you really, what you're giving them, what you want to give is each individual their money's worth, right? So if you have nothing but people who have donated 50 bucks, if you give them a $50, an awesome product for 50 bucks, you're doing them an incredible service. If your largest donator is somebody is, is at $5, then you give them the awesome product of for $5. And that's, that's what you should be shooting for. Now, oftentimes you have somebody out there who's donated $5,000 or some huge amount relative to what you're looking for, who you might want to really please, you know, like your mom or, you know, your rich uncle. <coughs> Pardon me. And that's, <laughs> we're both coughing today. I know. It's I, we. This is a terrible timing on our part to, <laughs> to choose to do this when we both are getting over the crud. Well, um, well I've, I've, I think this is like my third or fourth podcast where I'm coughing in the background. Well, yeah, let's get over that. But that's one of those things where um, a corporate structure would understand better how to deliver, hey, we're delivering this, which should be worth X amount. And so we're going to make sure it has that value. Whereas when you, when one who is the artist has been given all this capital, it starts to think, well, I know I'm so, you know, my average supporter donated 50 bucks, but it added up to a hundred thousand. I need to create a hundred thousand dollar video game or a hundred thousand dollar piece of art. And that can be misleading, I think, to the artist. Mm. And this is something that I just thought of right now as we were as we were discussing this. I've never formulated that thought before. Um, but it seems like that would be something that would be difficult for somebody in the artistic world to sort of wrap their head around in terms of, 
what are you delivering and to who and what has each individual paid as opposed to, I mean, let's face it, when you go to see Star Wars and you know it costs, you know, $100 million to make, you're not going saying, well, this had better be worth $100 million. You're going to say it better be worth the 10 to $15 I'm paying for the ticket. Yeah. Right. As an individual. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think can be difficult from the standpoint of when you suddenly receive what is a windfall in this sort of crowdsourcing situation as an artist. That, that, that's an interesting insight and it totally makes sense for the personally personality driven campaigns, mm -hmm. uh, where, where it is people spending money for Tim Schafer's work for Ego's work for Peter Molyneux's work, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I would say as a counterpoint, there are some campaigns that earn so much money and then produce essentially what they said they were going to produce. But because there was so much money put into it, that there is some backlash from people who say, well, you got this much money. What are you spending it on? Right. And there, there's certainly, I think, some room for that because, I mean, Kickstarter is supposed to be for funding this project. So technically those funds should be reserved for this project. It's not like a donation for like support me and give me money because I'm going to make this. It's give me money for this, please. And I will give you these things in return. A little bit like uh, PBS pledge drives. They give you thank you gifts. And sometimes when you're giving it to them, it can feel like you're trying to buy these things, but you know, that's not mm -hmm. exactly what it's supposed to be. Well, and there's also the fact that yes, Maybe I received as an artist on Kickstarter or project manager on Kickstarter, whatever, I received more than I initially wanted. But the fact of the matter is, this is what I created the campaign to produce. And I'm going to produce it to the best of my ability. And if I have leftover, what do I do with that? You know, and and I think that that's kind of where strong communication with your support base needs mm -hmm. to come in, where you say, like, you know, have a post on there. And say, we've met our goal. And I, I, for one, like if you had a really strong business plan or whatever for what you're going to do with the money, you knew exactly how much you needed to do this. And you got your like first two stretch goals or something. I would respect if someone then like said, don't donate anymore. We have what we need. Um, but or, another option would be. Or to say, um, to say something along the lines of, hey, any further, any further funding that comes in, we'll, we'll gratefully accept, and it's going to go to the infrastructure of creating more projects. Yeah, it, it's basically anything after this is going to go to the next project or is going to be used as a reserve <clears throat> to make sure that this project, uh, in, just in case this project hits any snags or anything. Um, and I know you were, we discussed this a little bit earlier. And you were discussing, you were talking about how important it is to keep that uh, uh, that strong channel of communication with your supporters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and that's actually getting back to uh, Don Bluth. And End of tangent campaign. number four. <laughs> Only four? I don't know. I'm, I lost track, really. I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not sure, just fake it. Um, uh he actually started with a Kickstarter campaign asking for $550,000, I think it was. They wound up canceling that campaign when they were half-funded and switched to an Indiegogo campaign. And I think, from what I've been able to see, 
they did a pretty good job of communicating things to their supporters where their news updates are now placed on both the dead Kickstarter page and the Indiegogo page. And they said, I, I'm not exactly sure what the details of what these would be, but they said they took a lot of the feedback from the Kickstarter campaign and used it to make a better Indiegogo campaign. Whether mm -hmm. that was that was like what their financials should look like or, you know, I don't know if someone, one of their supporters gave them some really good advice on making a sizzle reel that cut the cost because their Indiegogo campaign was only asking for like 300000 instead much less than their Kickstarter campaign was asking for, which strikes me as interesting. Or maybe their Kickstarter rewards were too rich and was taking too much of a cut from their uh, uh, donation requests. And they were had a much, you know, leaner um, uh, reward tier structure on their Indiegogo campaign. Or maybe they just, <coughs> it's possible they weren't confident that they were going to hit their Kickstarter goal and went to Indiegogo where they could, keep a portion of what was pledged even if they didn't hit their goal because you know kickstarter it's all or nothing and indiegogo depending on the type of campaign you run you can keep some of it right and that that's a more cynical line of thinking but maybe it added in there as well well i would be interested to know from you you have said to me that there is a real stigma associated with uh any video game developer who takes money creates a crowdsource campaign, gets that money, and then turns around and takes money from a game developing corporation. Right. The big example for that is uh, what I mentioned earlier is Peter Molyneux's Goddess. Mm -hmm. Because the idea there was we're, we're supposed to be funding. And I think in his case, he might have even said we're not, we're trying to avoid a publisher. We don't want to use a publisher. I can't remember if that's true, so, um, but but I I suspect it was. So in that case, it was adding to you know the general stigma, but it was also you know him going back on what he said he was going to do. Um, but the general idea is we want this, and this is one of those sort of personality-driven things. We want this developer to make what they're going to make without any publisher saying we have to do it this way. Or that way, you need to add this, remove that. You have to be held to this timeline, which could mean they have to cut features or something like that. Um, that's kind of how indie games, and and I don't want to paint this too generally, but uh, uh, that is a simple explanation for why indie games are somewhat lionized uh, in the community these days is because they don't have these external business oriented influences being exerted on them. So if someone has come out and said, this is the amount of money that I need to make this game. And then they take that money. And at some point in the process, go to the publisher, the one who's going to give them those business influences and take money from them as well. That's somewhat betraying the spirit of what, people were trying to contribute to because if they were going to go to the publisher in the first in, in at all why didn't they go there in the first place mm -hmm. uh sort of on the flip side of that is uh Iga. um he's the he, he's the developer of um uh castlevania games and he left his publisher and made an absolutely not castlevania game 
I can never remember the name off the top of my head. It's like Bloodlines or something like that. It's it's essentially Castlevania with a different coat of paint and a different name over the door. Um, but he sort of went with the, the, a lower tier publisher and got <coughs> everything that he wanted, the basics done. And then he started a crowdfunding campaign that said, we've got the basics more or less done, but if you fund us, we're going to have a physical release. I think he said he wanted it for a physical release, not just a digital release. Um, more enemies, more stages, and basically just to make it a bigger game. So that's kind of the and other that would side have been, of things. And that would have been an, a, a second release after what was being released by the publisher? No, that or... was to add to what was being released by the publisher. They just needed more funding. Okay. so Like, would... like the publisher said... You know, we don't want to give you any more money. And I'm going to presume the publisher um, essentially wasn't exerting a timeline pressure on them for this. Right, because otherwise that that would put everything. <laughs> and and it's, it's also possible that this would be, I, I, I might have misspoken. I, I That's actually a really good question. And it might be a case of um, like game updates after the fact. So like a, a, a 1.5 version or something along those lines. Right. Um, <clears throat> but it wouldn't be like a sequel. That's not what he's talking about. Gotcha. Well, the reason I think it's interesting that there's that sort of stigma associated with uh, taking money from a publisher after a crowdsourcing campaign in the video game world is there's a somewhat similar stigma in the arts world in that if you're somebody who's quote unquote made it, the rest of the people in the arts world see you doing a crowdsourcing crowdfunding campaign and think, what are you doing? <laughs> you, you've made it. You've got the money. You don't need the support of other people. You can get a studio. You can get a director. You can get this. You can get all the things you need just based on either your name or the money that you already have. You've got pull. You've got resources. You don't need these resources. Why do I need to give my resources? I'm perfectly happy to see you in a movie, Zach Bramph, but I don't need you to crowdfund your next project. And and I know your that, scrubs money should pay for this, or well, your scrubs exactly. clout should pay for this. And I actually, shouldn't be the one shouldering the risk. He actually had something that he was trying to crowdfund for. I think it was another a, a feature length film or something like that. And the other thing about that, something like that is it might be a great idea, but if he's grabbing all this, whatever the available revenue should be in the world of crowdfunding, what about somebody who's struggling to make an independent film and has decided, okay, I think I have enough people who know me and I think this is a project that's worthwhile. I'm going to go crowd, see if I can get some crowdsource funding and, oh, I've run smack into the fact that Zach Bramf, or in this case, maybe even Don Bluth, has a similar project. I was going to do this animated feature and I needed to do all that, but now all the all the money that's out there for an animated feature has been sucked up by the fact that Don Bluth has said, hey, here we go. And I don't know how much money Don Bluth has personally, and I don't know how successful or unsuccessful he's been over the last 15, 20 years. But for the, you know, small time animator who's trying to get something done and trying to, you know, get something from crowdsourcing it could actually become an impediment and sort of block. If, if everybody goes to the same crowdsourcing 
campaign for animation or for a feature film or for because of the name recognition, because of whatever that should be, it kind of on some level for the arts, at least not necessarily for other projects that are creating physical products, um, seems like it could be working against the spirit of crowdsourcing funds in that you want everybody to be able to contribute to whatever they want. But if everybody gets sucked into the black hole of, hey, look, Zach Braff, Zach Braff wants to do a new movie or, oh, my God, it's Don Bluth. We haven't seen him in forever and we want to see something better from him. It would be great. That can be a, that seems like it would be a little weird. And mm. I know that I know that I've heard people complain about that when they you see a, somebody with unrecognizable name, you kind of go, what are you doing on Kickstarter or Indiegogo or whatever it should be, you, you've made it. Why not hmm. let me or my friend who's struggling to make ends meet while they do improv at night, you know, or whatever, <laughs> get their thing crowdsourced or my friend who's the struggling, uh, sculptor or my friend who's the struggling painter get crowdsourced and get their show, you know, and they only need a uh, 5,000 bucks to get it done or they only need $10,000. So you're, Smaller Indiegogo campaign for, say, using Don Bluth as an example, let's say his smaller Indiegogo campaign is $250,000. That could be 25 other campaigns for people who could create incredibly diverse art, you know, all over the country or all over the world even, obviously. Yeah. Which, I, I see where you're coming from this. Mm -hmm. um, but for sake of, you know, a bit of a – for sake of conversation and a thought experiment, let's try flipping this on its head here. Mm-hmm. So that is certainly a, a, a significant concern if crowdfunding has reached its saturation point and the amount of dollars out there is capped. Right. And that is a question. Right. So let's say, on the other hand, if having – and let's just stick with Don Bluth. Let's say there's a whole bunch of people out there who don't really get involved with Kickstarter or Indiegogo or any other crowdfunding campaigns. And then they hear that – Don Bluth is doing this thing and they're like, oh, I want to get in on that. And then they start, they, they, they contribute to his campaign and then they start looking around. It's like, oh yeah, that, that maybe just, you know, breaking the ice is what they needed. Or, you know, this campaign goes through and it does well and we get a Dragon's Lair camp, uh, uh, movie. Um, and they think that was great. I want to do more of this. And then you're actually expanding the pool that a crowdfunding campaign can draw from. And that is an excellent observation. And I have no idea because a part of what that would depend on is the viability of getting people to click through from one uh, campaign page to another. Yeah. And, and, and that, and who knows? And, and who knows? Maybe that's why they went from Kickstarter to Indiegogo. Maybe they thought, Hey, we're going to be able to draw more funds to other people, which would be really honorable and really cool. Though I doubt that was their, <laughs> I doubt. Sir, I, I, sir, I strongly doubt that was a primary motivating factor, even if it if it uh, is an option. Yeah, I personally, I have not contributed to any crowdfunding campaigns. Um, I did not that I'm against it. I just never really been in a position where I saw a campaign. I thought, man, that's awesome. I really want to see that. Or I really want to support this mm -hmm. creator or artist, and and at the same time had the funds to contribute to it really it's pretty much entirely the former and and the the funds was just kind of on top of that right. but uh <laughs> um uh 
I I don't really know how much there is like, do you like this campaign? Maybe you should check out these other campaigns kind of links that you might see at the bottom, like if you were shopping on Amazon. I do. Know I would that, hope they do that. I do not know when I was on Kickstarter, that sort of thing would happen. And Kickstarter mm. does does a pretty good job of spamming people who have been involved with them mm. and saying, hey, these are the things that are going By good, do now. you mean that there's a hell of a lot or good in that they're targeted? Uh, I don't pay enough attention to the ones that I get to know whether or not they're targeted well. Um, there are uh, – Then that's not doing a good job of well, spamming. Well, I just don't even read them just because of the fact that I'm like, oh, it's another Kickstarter thing and I'm not doing anything with them right now, so I'm not concerned. Right. If if it was one of those – if it, if I was more involved in that, like if the concerns of my life are certainly not in the realm of what I'm going to do to help crowdsourcing in general <laughs> or get crowdsourcing for me right now. So as a result – I'm not paying attention to that. But when I was involved with it, I clicked through through to a lot of interesting different things on Kickstarter, mainly because they related to my project and things that would help what I was working on. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, well, I was working on a film project and here's this interesting little film device that somebody's pioneering making. Hmm, that could be really interesting. I could use that. Or here's another one. Hmm, I could use that. More, yeah, you know, if I fund them, the amount of money that I need to fund them is more than I can afford to get the items. So, you know, I never did myself mm. either. But okay. I do know that that's there on Kickstarter. I've ne never tooled around on Indiegogo, so mm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I and this, this kind of hits on an old topic of mine, but I would hope that they also use some decent analytics to know like, okay, if one person contributes once, they're this much more likely to contribute to other projects and you know, people who contribute to this kind of project can contribute to that kind of project and how much they're interested in contributing. So you mentioned they, they send you news and updates on other projects, and hopefully those are well targeted to stuff that should interest you. I would think um, I would think that they would have something like that going on. They probably don't have if the information they aren't, for <laughs> they they should really be working on it because that's really important. Those those intelligent agents that direct you to what you want. Um, I mean, a, a lot of the online ad like banner ads you see tend to have the problem of they tell you where you've been, not where you should go. Right. And that's one of the big tricks. But when you're inside a closed ecosystem, you might say, like, if you're looking at someone's behavior on Amazon, you can understand they have bought this and they say that people who've bought this tend to buy this too. So take a look at this. Mm -hmm. Or inside the behavior of a game, you can see that people who partake of this activity tend to also partake of this activity and avoid that activity. And there's certain behavioral trends you can get out of that. So when you have a more contained thing, rather than everything you do online, there's a lot of interesting stuff you can get out. And Kickstarter should be able to function as one of those contained systems where they can extract useful, valid information from someone's behavior. And I, I, I know we've talked about this before as well. This isn't exactly an invasion of privacy. This is all information that you've given them. Right. So, it's a, and from my, from my opinion, acting as though that in itself is an invasion of privacy, it's like, it's kind of like asking someone to immediately forget everything you talked about in the conversation that you just had. <laughs> well, some people, you don't have to ask them. They just do it anyway. 
Those are called stoners. No. Uh, Ah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, so. I, I think that sort of intelligent use of the information by crowdsourcing um, entities would be great. I just, I don't know that they're doing it because in part what you're dealing with is the fact that most people who are going to help fund a crowdsourcing campaign are a little bit more, I hate using the word, but proactive about hunting down what they're after, I think. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of passive stuff that happens on the web where people are just, oh yeah, I'll take a look at that, whatever, moving on. I'll take a look at that, whatever, moving on. Whereas with this sort of a campaign, a lot of people come to it not because they were made aware of it online. They were may have been aware of it from some other word of mouth, what have you. And they go, oh, oh, I want to check it out and because I'd like to contribute because I think I like that product or I like that project or whatever it should be. And so you've already got people who are self-motivated. And so when you throw people like that, anything, hey, these are the other things that are big right now, you can sort of hope to cast, I would think that you can sort of hope to cast a broad net and maybe pull back at least the big fish. Cause I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's similar when crowds crowdsourcing It's similar to having a, a casino, you know, I just need to get one, <laughs> just need to get one big fish come in and we're in the black for the month, you know? Um, <laughs> so that sort of thing is something where you can, you can garner a little bit of extra attention for somebody but I also don't know, and who knows what's happening on the back end of this, those emails, do certain campaigns pay for them, their, e their uh, campaign to be publicized? Who knows? Don't know. Haven't looked into it. Yeah. That, that, that's another interesting point. If you can kick something into Kickstarter to get a um, preferred placement. Right. Mm. And that I don't know. That I'm not aware of. And I wouldn't think you would be able to. I would think that you would hope that there was some sort of honorable <laughs> entity behind the whole thing saying, okay, this is just something that's garnered a lot of attention. So we're just going to make sure that people have heard about it. Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I mean, I'm sure Kickstarter definitely wants to have, you know, their own, you know, big projects have the most success so they can get more of their share. I mean, right. they're, they're, and, and they're, it's in no one's interest to, to have um, their platform be, only big fish either because then you're going to be limiting you know well you're going to lose you know it's it's bernie sanders versus hillary clinton right <laughs> you know it, you want to be able to be both you want to get all the big corporate donors and you want to get mom and pop yeah because there's a lot more mom and pops and, and bernie sanders is proving that <laughs> or according to the what we are told we i i haven't looked at the actual numbers but you know that's what it seems that's what seems to be the case there are so many more of the mom and pop folks out there that you can match what the larger entities will try to do right so and and that's why you know crowdfunding is a thing because i mean if you if you look at it from that other side is is crowdfunding itself is going to those mom and pops for your funding whereas going to a publisher or whatever large donor outside of the crowdfunding uh, uh, platform would be. Right. That's that's going to Wall Street. It's this. I kind of like this metaphor, this <laughs> Hillary versus Bernie metaphor or whoever you want to use. Any, it's pretty much any other politician other than Bernie, I guess. <laughs> well, wasn't that wasn't that uh, Barack Obama's big trick in the uh, in his first win was that uh, he was able to get a lot of small donations? 
Well, I do know that he had a huge social media campaign and he mm -hmm. was the first candidate to make use of that and use it well. And he, so far, so good. He's the only candidate has, who has really used it well, um, though Bernie Sanders seems to be doing something along those lines right now. And I, but I don't know if that translated into small donations or not. I don't remember that. Okay. Oh, boy. So, 12 tangents in. <laughs> <laughs> And, okay, so just let's uh, circle back to Don Bluth again. Um, yeah, the greedy jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, uh, another thing that's uh, uh, particular about his campaign, uh, certainly compared to a lot of the video game campaigns that I've paid much attention to or covered, is that he's overtly not trying to get the money for the entire production. Correct. He said, I want this much money to make a demo reel, a sizzle reel, to present to... Uh, uh, um, I'm stuck in video game terminology, so I'm going to say publisher. I can't remember what the... Like a studio. Uh, uh, yeah, a studio. For, for movies. And, and, and have them invest $70 million in it. They're looking specifically for $70 million is what they've stated. Well, here's And I think I think that's uh, an interesting way to go in the sense of, you know, they're overtly not trying to make the whole thing. They're they're running a Kickstarter campaign to kickstart their project to get the full funding. But here's something that's interesting about that that I hadn't even considered until just now, which is most Kickstarter campaigns are giving you a chance to invest in a project. If you're investing in the sizzle reel, you're not investing in the movie. Mm. And it removes you by one step. What that means in terms of crowdsource funding in general and what's possible in terms of, you know, keeping people linked to the film as, you know, producers and whatnot, I don't know. But it is interesting that, okay, yes, please help us. We want to make this movie. So help us make this sizzle reel. We'll give you whatever rewards we can about that. And then the movie's going to be something completely different. It's going to be a completely different source of funds. It's going to be, you aren't going to, you, you will may have had a hand in our getting the funds, but you will not have supplied the funds, which is kind of interesting to me. I had not considered this before. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I mean, that, that, that's a good point. <laughs> and I would personally hope that, uh, say that the sizzle reel gets the funding and they make a full movie mm -hmm. that in the credits of the full movie, they'd essentially list all of the <laughs> Kickstarter contributors, at least from you know a certain what? level. You know what? I bet you that's one of the, I bet you that's one of the level le tiers of donation. Uh, it might be, I don't recall, it's but even if it isn't, I would hope that they would at least have like anyone who donates $5 or more has a thing or a special thanks credit or, you know, Special thanks to Kickstarter contributors, something or other. Right. Because I think I I I, I want to say you don't necessarily have to be under your own name in Kickstarter. So they may also have to, you know, um, uh, prune that list some in case someone is putting an untoward name. Yeah, yeah, that I like don't know. A, I don't remember that. I I know that nobody, uh, nobody on my campaign was trying to be anonymous or <laughs> screw around with my ability to help them out. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know that uh, I don't think it was Kickstarter. I think he did something else. But Stephen Colbert had 
had something like this and, and oh it was for his super pack yeah that was it that was it it was the contributors to a super pack and they would and he would give you every <laughs> single name he got as crazy as they would be. <laughs> well he, he he had them running on a, a ticker at the bottom of the screen and a couple of let's just say a couple of particularly suggestive ones came through and he overtly pointed them out later uh one in particular which he then expanded on to like the family of this person it was i won't repeat it here it's not necessarily i actually i think i saw this i, I remember what i'm talking about <laughs> if, if, if and you trust look... us ladies and gentlemen it was hilarious you should go look oh, yes. it up it was awesome uh, <laughs> and moving on <laughs> yes um but i mean for for my own sense i mean for don bluth himself i'm just glad to see him doing more stuff i think that Kind of going back to, to our beginning topic about animation branching off into computer animated stuff. I think we're at a point now where we can look at, say, hand-drawn or call it traditionally traditional animation stuff is making somewhat of a comeback. Because, I mean, at this point, you could look at it as a stylistic choice. There's different things that you can do with it. You can present things. It evokes different emotions in the audience. Um or even just calling it retro and, and giving it its own charm for that. Um, I'm just kind of glad to see, even if it's just a sizzle reel, I'm looking forward to just seeing more work from him. Right. I, I, I don't know if you agree or disagree, or, or if you're kind of firmly in the, damn it, another big name's taking more of the Kickstarter pie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not really of one mind or another about it with, with, this particular campaign but it does make me wonder about all of those different factors um i haven't been actively involved in anything with kickstarter or indiegogo in a while although actually that's not true now that i think about it there was a project that i the stage project that i did that had an indiegogo <laughs> campaign i wasn't personally responsible for the indiegogo campaign and i have no idea where where it ended up oh you were just a beneficiary of it well, actually, the project was <laughs> happening, whether the, whatever happened with the Indiegogo campaign, the Indiegogo campaign was there to help supplement the project and make sure that it wasn't going to, you know, cost the producer, you know, her shirt, <laughs> yeah. um, which it may still have. I don't know. Um, mm. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I think that's another, you know, I was talking before about um, if a project runs into a snag and becomes more expensive than it was expected to be or um, with the absolutely not Castlevania campaign using this to try to expand the scope of what they have. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't have anything to say to that. <laughs> in, case, in case you didn't notice. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. But I think, I think your point about the idea that a hand-drawn or more traditional style of animation being an artistic choice is something that's more available now than it was when computer animation was first sort of sort of growing up because at that point it was everybody wanted to try the next new big thing and they were just trying to push the boundaries push the boundaries push the boundaries and now you have a lot of projects where i'm assuming computers are heavily involved but they're finding ways to give you the hand-drawn feel yeah you know and there's... i think that's i'm assuming that pixar is doing that a bang-up job of that because you have the hand-drawn feel with a lot of their stuff Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's not all done by hand. 
Uh, no. Just no. guessing. <laughs> um, so, and that's something that's available to us now because the marriage of the artistic and the technical has started to really knit as opposed to it being fragmented between, well, we're going to do this technical thing and we're going to make an artistic sacrifice in order to accommodate it. Yeah, that's actually something that can be really jarring in uh, anime, actually, because they have, it's pretty rare for anime to have the characters done um, with computers, but they do have, it's not uncommon for, particularly with um, like shows that have mech combat, for example, where you go into the, the machines and all the machine stuff is computer generated. Mm-hmm. And some of them, the transition between is really jarring, especially if you have both of them on screen at the same time. Right. There are some shows that are starting to have computer generated uh, characters, you know, human faces and so forth. Um, and sometimes that can be distracting. But I think that's kind of an example of you were, you were talking about how like the two techniques are are you said knit or kind of just the marriage is starting to solidify of how you can use them together. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of feel like in anime, you can see it happening really overtly. Well, anime is a style that has never, well, it isn't predicated on things being seamless. (laughs) So there's a lot of things that, you know, we have this jarring moment of somebody flying through the air and all you see is stuff, you know, this squiggly lines going behind them to represent that they're in motion and that's it. And that's not about being realistic or smooth. And, you know, the Disney tradition of animation and what have you, or even just Warner brothers or what have you, that stuff is trying to create, a much, much more of a sense of motion with what you're seeing rather than having uh, a shorthand on the screen to signify this. Correct. Motion. And it's trying to aid you with your suspension of disbelief as opposed to anime, which just says, okay, okay, you suspended your disbelief, so let's see what we can do. Mm. And so there you have the ability to show the fissures between the two without as much risk, mm-hmm. which is not to say that it's not a risk, but the risk I don't think is as great. And for what it's worth for those listening, that's not even to say that all anime is necessarily like this, but this is a trend that, that you can see there. Yes. There, there's certainly some anime that are very realistic, very much display their motion. I would point to the uh, Kenshin OVAs as, as being very well animated on, on, uh, on that sense in a lot of, uh, a lot of points. Um, but anyway. Um, so... Kind of an odd question for you. So if we do get a Dragon's Lair movie, would that make it by default the best video game movie that's ever been made? <laughs> well, you see, the problem is I think a lot of movies are made these days before the videos come, video game has happened and you can see the video game planning. And <laughs> so in some ways, it would have to be better than any of the Hobbit movies. Because those Hobbit movies, you watch them and you go, oh, I see where this is going to go in the video game. <laughs> oh, this is what they're going to do in the video game. I can see it. This is, a, I can see it. And that's where I'll have to hit X. You know, I mean, <laughs> as you watch the, the characters run through what for them is a great big blue screen, um, it's really easy 
to see how they're going to translate it into a video game now. And that makes me sometimes think, oh, well, the best video game movie is going to be the movie that ends up creating the best video game. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you, you're you're kind of talking about the movie that becomes a video game. No, I know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thought i i don't have enough of a of a handle on what is the what are the other movies in the running i mean i've seen some movies made from video games obviously but i haven't seen enough of them to say oh i can say for sure <laughs> that it would be better but it would i will say this given that it's coming from an animated video game platform it's going to have a huge leg up <laughs> or Someone could say that uh, since the video game was a movie in the first place, <laughs> <laughs> it and it, it did have a very cinematic feel because of the way it was put together. Yeah, because it was its own kind of static clips just with prompts. Mm-hmm. You know, it it's it was almost like um, if uh, a kid was watching a TV or a movie with a video game controller in their hand and pretending that they were playing the movie. <laughs> It's kind of how the old Dragon Slayer games worked. That's what the movie should have. Instead of 3D glasses, you should just get a controller. <laughs> and you a controller. And you a controller that feels like it's doing something. <laughs> <laughs> or even better, it not only does it, it feels like it's doing something, and it's done not necessarily, but it still has its rumble pack on. <laughs> <laughs> so as you're going, whoa! <laughs> it's right back, uh, to the, right, right back to the days of William Castle. <laughs> Are we going to hire someone to put on a costume and run through the theater too? Or, you know, if he, well, the thing is the rumble pack, he had the, the, the what was called the tingler in one of his <laughs> films where every seat in the movie theater had a little vibrating device in it to make you think that something was coming to get you, mm. which there's just so many ways that could go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a few, I would imagine. Yes. Okay, I think that hit most of uh, what I wanted to talk about. This, uh, unless there was anything you wanted to touch on. No, I think, I think we, I think we've traveled far and wide. Both. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. So, um, as is to be the tradition for this show, for at least any first-time guest, um, Bill, I would like it if you could share any interesting story or anecdote. Uh, of any sort about any of your sort of production type behind the line experiences as it were. So I was thinking about that when you asked me and at first I was like, well, there's a whole bunch of different stories I could tell that are vaguely amusing, somewhat interesting, but I realized, I realized what I want to tell because it kind of addresses the temperament of actors who are on stage on occasion. Cause I was in a production of the merchant of Venice And there is the device in the story of three caskets that the suitors of Portia have to choose between. If they choose the correct casket, it will have her picture inside. And that means they chose the correct casket and they can have her hand in marriage. Well, the gentleman who's playing uh, Bassanio, who's the young man who's in love with Portia and wants to marry her and Portia wants him to marry her as well, um, has come in. And somewhere probably about four weeks into a five-week rehearsal process, he does the scene where he's going to pick the casket. He opens it up, and he just is very irritated about the fact 
that it's not a picture of our actual Porsche. It's not even a picture of something similar to our, it's, it's some dude or something. I don't know. It's just something ridiculous. It's just, it's just a stand-in. And mm. this happens in the theater a lot. You have props that are stand-ins. You're supposed to have a piece of paper with a particular picture on it. You have a piece of paper with no picture on it or what have you. But he opens it up. And this particular day, he was unhappy about that fact. And he says to the director, can we please get a picture of Portia in here? And the director says, well, you know, it's just a stand-in, but we can get whatever you want. And he goes, okay, because this is really, it's really hard to act to this, whatever the picture was. And I'm, I, I'm pretending to swear love to this thing and it's not even her. He goes, yeah, okay, well, the director says, okay, that's, that's, that's fine. I, I totally understand. W what would you like? And he was so worked up about this at this point, his response was, I would like to not be designing the show. <laughs> and <laughs> I was struck at that moment as the director was perfectly reasonably saying, whatever you want, you know, we'll get it that there is a there is a moment at which this particular actor ha had decided he really didn't want to win this argument. <laughs> he just wanted to have it <laughs> because there was nothing to argue against. And he was just swinging his fists, you know, whatever you want to call it metaphorically. And it was just one of those hilarious moments that you're sitting there going, really, you can't you can't just accept that. He want you want a picture of her? He'll give it to you. Whatever, and that's what he got eventually. But it was <laughs> it was pretty hilarious, hilarious moment in retrospect. Because at the time you're like, dude, calm down. And then there was of course another time when an actor was being told. To, I just remembered this right now. An actor was being told to do some different blocking from the house. So the director's out in the seats and he's calling up onto the stage, and <laughs> the actor just looks out into the audience and says to the director, and I quote, I am not a meat puppet. <laughs> and I, 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 part of me hopes that the director like held up little puppet sticks. <laughs> <laughs> it was what, that was one of those moments. And I'd completely forgotten about that until just as I was telling the other story, that one's probably funnier. Now, <laughs> now that you've heard it. Again, an insight into what happens. Actors, sometimes they get, wrapped up in what they're trying to do and what they're trying to get done. And it's not even that they're angry at that director. It's just, they're angry at the process for a moment that can happen mm. and where you're just, things aren't going the way you want. And anybody who's done this, done any artistic work at all knows that happens. And somebody comes in and says, Hey, what would you like for dinner? I don't care. Get out of here. You know, <laughs> you're not angry at that person. You're angry at the process that you're going through. <laughs> The funny thing about that is I've had actually the inverse experience when I, I, I've actually asked Judge Greg what he wants, and the process of asking him what he wants to eat is very frustrating because he'll say, food. <laughs> and I press him for details. He says, delicious food. I'm like, you're not helping. Here's, here's how you solve this particular problem, particularly with a group. If somebody rec recommends or suggests a restaurant or a type of food, and you just say to the group, Anyone has veto power, but if you veto, you have to come up with your own suggestion. Mm, that's Period. pretty good. So here's my suggestion to you. Ball's in your court. Veto or not, if you veto, make a suggestion of your own. If you don't make a suggestion, your veto is an old. Exactly. It's a very, it keeps people very honest because then they're like, well, I don't really want the, well, I guess I can do that if everybody else is okay with it. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my, so that's two stories for the price of one. There you go. Plus advice for how to select food. Plus and Kickstarter group, commentary, and video game commentary, movie commentary, and political commentary even. We, we're your full service podcast. <laughs> I shouldn't make you laugh, it's going to make you cough. <laughs> oh God, stop that. Winner! All right, well, that was quite interesting. I think uh, it seems like uh, you actually learned a lot. And <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Well, you were saying, it's like, man, I didn't even think about this until right now. You are said you that like five times. <laughs> so hopefully this was as light enlightening for listeners as it was for you. <laughs> <laughs> they hopefully have a higher bar. <laughs> I have faith in my audience. Good. I hope I have faith in my audience. I haven't actually made up my mind about that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, join me next week while there will be another Behind the Line article, and in two weeks after that for the next Behind the Line radio. If you'd like me to discuss anything, you can always email me at kinetic at enthusiacs.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiacs.com. And I'll hope to see you next week, and I hope you'll hear me again in two weeks. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter, at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs. Enthusiacs.